Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of, bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is some information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Ian Fleming. Now let's get started with our story about Ian Fleming. Secret agent James Bond is one of the most recognizable fictional characters ever created. His portrayal by Sean Connery as the epitome of masculinity, bravado, and sophisticated wit made 007 one of the most iconic dramatic figures of the 20th century. It should not be a surprise that the author who brought Bond to life, Ian Fleming, was himself a product of the British upper class and all of its institutions and attitudes. Initially a failure in several chosen careers, Fleming succeeded as a novelist relatively late in life. His dream of merely publishing a novel mushrooming into one of the biggest success stories in publishing history. But Fleming's background in wartime intelligence work and his complicated personal life are an important and relatively unknown aspect of the man who created James Bond. Ian Fleming was born on May 28, 1908, the second son of Valentine and Evelyn Fleming. Both parents came from upper-crust British backgrounds. Evelyn, known as Eve, was the descendant of a solicitor paternal grandfather and a maternal grandfather who was the personal physician to Queen Victoria, both of whom would be knighted for their efforts. Valentine, known as Val, was the son of the wildly successful Robert Fleming, a pioneering British financier who originated the investment bank Robert Fleming and Company. Although his father might have appreciated a more aristocratic, wealthier daughter-in-law, he still gifted the young couple 250,000 British pounds upon their marriage in 1906. Val and his brother Philip were both educated at Eton and Oxford, standard procedure for the sons of wealthy British society. Val would join his father's firm and be elected as, of course, a conservative member of Parliament. Life for the Fleming family was pretty carefree until international events interceded and Val Fleming became involved in World War I as a captain in the Queen's own Oxfordshire Hussars, a cavalry unit that was deployed to France. While his father was sent to the Great War, Ian Fleming was sent to an upscale private school in preparation for his inevitable ascendance to Eton. Although some of Val's aristocratic military comrades were able to get themselves transferred away from frontline responsibility, Val Fleming was not so fortunate, an eventuality with fatal consequences. On May 20, 1917, Val Fleming was killed by a direct hit in a German artillery bombardment emanating from a portion of the Hindenburg Line. Fleming was one of 22 MPs killed in the war. Aged 35, he also left his young widow to raise Philip, Ian, and two younger sons. Fortunately, a significant trust fund was left to the family, and Ian Fleming spent more of his adolescence at his paternal grandparents' estate called Joyce Grove. 
1921, Fleming joined his older brother Peter at Eton and excelled at athletics, although he never achieved his sibling's level of scholarship. His mother chose this particular time to shed her status as a war widow, selling her estate and moving to the bohemian London neighborhood of Chelsea, where she cultivated a new image as a wealthy patron of the arts. In her 40s and desperate to have a daughter, she eventually got pregnant by a much younger artist and gave birth to what she would claim to be was an adopted daughter named Amaryllis. Because Ian was not destined to be a scholar like his brother, she also radically interfered with his education, transferring him to the military section of Eton, which prepared students for Britain's equivalent of West Point, Sandhurst Academy, where Fleming received an appointment as a cadet in September of 1924. Initially, Fleming excelled at Sandhurst and was on course to receive his officer's commission at the end of the school year beginning in 1927, when a bizarre incident sidetracked his military career. Already attracted to the nightlife, Fleming managed to contract gonorrhea from a casual liaison in a London club. His mother was appalled and had him secretly installed in a hospital for treatment and forced him to take a semester off from school, quote, due to illness, unquote. Not content with this level of punishment, she continued to upbraid her son, finally forcing him to withdraw from Sandhurst altogether and chastising him about the dreadful scandal he was potentially inviting for the whole family. It might have made for a terrific plot twist in a PBS television show about British gentility, but unfortunately it was Fleming's real life at the time. He was eventually exiled to Austria, where he was to finish his education in a boarding school run by an English couple. The plan put in place for Ian was to have the headmaster of the school, Ernan Forbes Dennis, and his wife, novelist Phyllis Bottom, improve his foreign language skills and beef up his academics to prepare for the foreign office entrance exam. Since Fleming already spoke German and French reasonably well, that seemed like a workable plan. He attended the universities at Munich and Geneva to round his academics into shape. Driving around at high speed in his Buick sports car, Hanging around the cafes and skiing at nearby Chamonix seems like a wonderful existence for a 21-year-old. Having already successfully sat for the informal first part of his foreign office exam and interacting with young diplomats from the League of Nations, Fleming seemed well on his way in the first steps of a career path. Unfortunately, when Ian sat for the written part of the exam in September of 1931, his performance was adequate enough to achieve a passing grade 25th out of the 62 candidates, but not good enough to win an appointment, which only went to the top three performers. Fleming was not only disappointed, he also had to face the wrath of his domineering mother, who punished him by demanding that he break off his romance with his current Swiss girlfriend, ostensibly because she was a distraction. She also immediately implemented a Plan B, which called for Ian to apply to Reuters News Agency, where she was well-connected socially. By October, Fleming was gainfully employed in his first real job, which consisted mostly of obituary rewrites and translations of foreign wire service copy into English. He would eventually be given more interesting assignments in Moscow and Berlin. But when asked to transfer to Shanghai at a very modest salary, which Fleming commented would not even cover his opium budget, he resigned and took a position with a bank, Cull & Company, another move encouraged by his mother. Money was clearly on Fleming's mind as his paternal grandfather had died and left everything to his three other surviving children, the assumption being that Ian and his siblings were already well taken care of after the death of Valentine Fleming. 
this was definitely not the case. Fleming lasted about two years in his banking job that was clearly going nowhere. Through connections, he found a position at a stock brokerage firm, Rowe and Pittman. He would enjoy the social aspects of stock brokerage, especially whining and dining potential clients, but the financial advisory part was not appealing. One of the managing partners in the firm described him as, quote, among the world's worst stockbrokers, unquote. Fleming would last four years in this position, bored by his work but enthusiastic about his other pursuits, especially book collecting and womanizing. He would shamelessly dangle two and three women at a time, usually with one serious girlfriend and various other trysts and conquests that he pursued without a scruple of any kind. Fleming also was arrogant and condescending to women, making it clear that he felt them to be inferior. One former lover stated that he had two favorite topics, sex and himself. Many found him to be unlikable, but some found him irresistible. Although it would not become meaningful for many years, Ian Fleming initiated a relationship in August of 1935 that would have a profound effect on his future literary life. In Kitzbühel, Austria, on a summer holiday, he met 26-year-old Muriel Wright, Although she came from the type of elite British background that didn't require that she work for a living, she was a professional model, especially of ski apparel and bathing suits, with a figure to back it up. She and Fleming hit it off immediately, and they spent a great deal of time together. Unfortunately, Muriel adored Ian Fleming, a situation that he took full advantage of, enjoying her company, but not having the slightest intention of moving the relationship forward in any meaningful way. Subsequent events would cause Fleming to deeply regret how he treated her, but she remained one of several women he romanced simultaneously. Fleming would eventually be rescued from the private sector by British intelligence in mid-1938. He had shown an interest in intelligence gathering during his journalism days, and again family connections brought him to the attention of the director of naval intelligence, John Godfrey. He would be named Godfrey's assistant and liaison to other intelligence and government branches. By the first week of World War II, he would be promoted to the rank of commander in the British Navy. Fleming found a niche that he enjoyed, and Godfrey, who would become the model for the character M in the subsequent Bond novels, quickly recognized his intelligence and potential and gave him wide latitude to pursue inventive ideas and projects to foment chaos and confusion behind German lines. During the German invasion of France, Ian was dispatched first to Paris and after the capital fell to Bordeaux to help extract British nationals about to be trapped by the Germans. Fleming worked closely with a man named Charles Fraser Smith, a member of the Ministry of Supply, who concocted all sorts of gadgets, including a hollowed-out golf ball that was used to transport secret messages. Fraser Smith also would be one of several individuals that would later inspire Fleming during his literary career. Tragedy again struck the Fleming family during wartime, when Ian's younger brother Michael was wounded and taken prisoner in France and died as a POW in October of 1940, aged 28. Fleming himself narrowly escaped death three times during the Blitz, when structures in his vicinity were flattened by bombs. His main accomplishment on Admiral Godfrey's staff was to help convince an American envoy, William Donovan, to create a department to share information with British intelligence. The U.S. Ambassador Joseph Kennedy was notoriously anti-British and didn't think that Britain would survive, much less prevail, over Nazi Germany. Donovan, upon his return to the U.S., convinced President Roosevelt to set up something called the Office of the Coordinator of Information, the forerunner of the OSS, with Donovan at its head. Fleming also worked closely on Operation Golden Eye, 
the construction of an espionage network in Spain, Portugal, and Gibraltar. This network was to begin sabotage and provide frontline intelligence in the event of a German takeover of the Iberian Peninsula. Fleming played an integral part in the formation of the 30 Assault Unit, a group of commandos fashioned after the unit employed by Nazi Germany, commanded by Otto Skorzeny. This unit took part in the failed Dieppe raid of 1942, as well as many missions across Europe following the successful D-Day invasion. Wartime reality struck again in 1944 when Muriel Wright was killed by exploding masonry that freakishly hit her through an open window. Ian Fleming had to identify her body and was especially depressed by her death, feeling guilty about the manner in which he rakishly juggled her with the other women in his life. As a friend commented after the death of Muriel Wright, the trouble with Ian is that you have to get yourself killed before he feels anything. Muriel Wright would subsequently become immortalized in a strange, unpredictable manner. Beautiful, athletic, adventurous, and utterly infatuated with Fleming, she would eventually become the archetype for the Bond Girl, a fundamental in all of Fleming's subsequent fiction, an idealized characterization that even Fleming acknowledged when he described Muriel Wright as too good to be true. If Muriel was totally smitten and more than a little naive, Anne Charteris, another girlfriend, was more calculating and fully expected Fleming to propose when her husband was killed in the war. He didn't, so she instead married Esmond Harmsworth, the Viscount of Rothermere. But even after her marriage, Anne continued to see Ian on the side, a typically twisted Fleming emotional relationship. When she miscarried with her first child, it was rumored to actually be Fleming's and not her husband's. By the end of the war, Fleming was interested in attempting to emulate his brother Peter Fleming, an accomplished travel writer and journalist for the Times. But Fleming was not ready to forego a steady salary for the potentially financially unrewarding life of a writer. So instead, he took a job with the Kemsley newspaper chain as a mid-level manager. Because his position allowed up to three months of annual vacation, Fleming spent all of his time off in Jamaica, which he first visited during the war. He also began building a home near the northern coastline on Oracabessa Bay. He would name this property Goldeneye, and it would quickly become a destination for various British writers and celebrities who also spent time at the nearby Firefly, a home owned by Noel Coward. Goldeneye overlooked a beach and a coral reef teeming with exotic fish and crustaceans and would play an important role in both Fleming's romantic and professional life. Unfortunately, his day-to-day -day existence was a little more mundane, supervising the 80 international correspondents that contributed to the Kemsley string of publications. Fleming did not write for any of these papers, but he did publish his own journalism, including travel pieces on Jamaica, which added to the booming tourism industry on the island and helped popularize it as a chic and prestigious destination. Fleming had another reason for building his Caribbean hideaway. As he was still continuing his preposterous relationship with Anne Charteris, now the Viscountess of Rothermere, it provided the perfect excuse to get her out of London, ostensibly to visit Ian's neighbor, Noel Coward. Never mind that all of London society was aware of the ongoing romance, especially because Fleming frequently mingled socially with the Rothermeres and attended numerous parties at their luxurious home, Warwick House. Eventually, this would lead to the Viscount's request for a divorce in 1951. By this time, Fleming's future wife would be pregnant again, and based on her husband's celibate relationship with her, there could be no doubt as to paternity. 
the divorce would be utterly civilized, with Rothermere cheerfully agreeing to a £100,000 settlement, which he described to acquaintances as the going price these days. Ian Fleming quickly proposed to Anne, and the couple adjourned to Jamaica, where they were married in March of 1952. Despite the practically comedic aspect of this remarkable turn of events, this would be the turning point of Ian's life. Forgetting the harsh reality that over 40, he was now going to shed an aggressive bachelorhood and even attempt to raise a child, his wife was also approaching 40, and their relationship, always stormy, would now be fraught with additional concerns of just how Ian was going to support both a family and a spouse with expensive tastes and two teenage children of her own. In the short term, the divorce settlement would provide the freedom to prompt Fleming to attempt what his new wife and other acquaintances had been nagging him to do for years. Write that thriller or detective pulp or whatever it was he had threatened to compose for many years. And so he did. Sometime in early 1952, Fleming began a process that would continue while in Jamaica for the rest of his life. After an early morning swim in the reef off of Goldeneye and breakfast in the garden with his wife, he would sit at a roll-top desk in his living room and write continuously until noon. After a nap and an afternoon outside, Fleming would return to whatever he had written earlier in the day and correct it. The finished pages would then be deposited in his desk. Although the exact date that Fleming began writing his first manuscript is still up for debate, it was finished in as little as four weeks, on the 18th of March, 1952. The novel was 62,000 words. It was entitled Casino Royale. Acquiring a name for his protagonist was simple enough. When cosmopolitan visitors to Goldeneye found themselves a little bored by the repetitive tropical languor, Fleming suggested some bird-watching, accompanied by the book Macmillan's Field Guide to the West Indies by James Bond, a volume that sat prominently on a shelf near Ian's desk. Fleming deliberately wanted a simple name for a character that he described as an anonymous blunt instrument wielded by a government department. Fleming also immediately delighted in incorporating his friends' names or their characters in depictions that would be immediately evident to the cognoscenti. From his first novel, Fleming followed the same framework of a sophisticated secret agent battling a larger-than-life villain intent on dire Cold War objectives. In this case, an Alsatian trade unionist, Le Chiffre, with shadowy Soviet connections. Of course, there is also a major romantic interest, a doomed double agent, Vesper Lind. Ultimately, after a torrid affair with James, she admits her treachery, but also professes her eternal love as she commits suicide to save Bond from the clutches of Schmirsch, a murderous Soviet counterintelligence agency. It was not until May of 1952 that Fleming rang up an editor friend from the prestigious Jonathan Cape Publishing House and coyly let on that he had actually written a novel. Although the book eventually made its way with positive praise to the desk of the actual Jonathan Cape, the officious owner of the publishing house initially wasn't impressed until Peter Fleming, already on the firm's roster, put in a good word. The Bond books would become the most profitable series in Jonathan Cape's history. By August, Ian Fleming welcomed his first published novel and his first and only child, Casper. Having exploited his brother's connections to get his novel into print, Fleming then set about utilizing his wide-ranging newspaper connections to ensure that Casino Royale received enthusiastic reviews. Upon the book's publication in April of 1953, it was greeted with a positive response and sold out its first edition in six weeks. 
two more editions would be sellouts, and the publisher quickly offered up a three-book contract. But Fleming was not satisfied with a standard royalty contract and played hardball to get his percentages increased. He commented that his profits from his first book would barely keep his wife in asparagus during Coronation Week, which was probably the truth. Fleming concocted all sorts of alleged deals that other publishers were supposedly dangling and added the seemingly blasé close that there would certainly be no hard feelings if Jonathan Cape chose to not match these lucrative offers. The publisher caved and gave Fleming everything he wanted. The author was already working on what was to be his eventual second novel, Live and Let Die. Somehow, Fleming managed to also hang on to his newspaper job and even managed to get assigned to New York for two weeks, where he worked out a publishing deal for the American rights to Casino Royale, which was picked up by Macmillan. Although nothing specific was etched in stone, both Fleming's American agency Curtis Brown and Jonathan Cape were approached by film entities inquiring about movie rights. An actual deal was as much hampered by the two entities quibbling over how a commission would or would not be split up, but it seemed that, with other books in the pipeline, it was only a matter of time before either an American or British theatrical entity put James Bond on the big screen. Ian Fleming's literary career was off to a rousing start. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Ian Fleming. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Ian Fleming by Andrew Lysett and Goldeneye, Where Bond Was Born, Ian Fleming's Jamaica by Matthew Parker. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.